I want to stress to governments, to people listening, to please remember that amongst the many categories of at-risk Afghans, including women human rights defenders, including other human rights activists, including journalists, please also remember cultural workers and artists because they are really in the front lines of those targeted by the Taliban because their uh, art and, and cultural practice is so much at odds with the very stark vision of Afghanistan uh, that the Taliban has historically had. The U.S. military mission in Afghanistan is over. The American withdrawal has been declared complete, although the general in charge of the pullout acknowledges they didn't evacuate everyone they had hoped to. With the collapse of the Afghan government and the Taliban taking control, advocates fear a terrible backslide in human rights and civil society. This is The Backdrop, a UC Davis podcast exploring the world of ideas. I'm Satirius Johnson. Karima Benoon is a professor at the UC Davis School of Law, where she teaches courses on human rights and international law. She's been working with others to help get artists, musicians, and other at-risk cultural workers out of Afghanistan. She's worked in the field of human rights, including in Afghanistan, for more than 20 years. She serves as UN Special Rapporteur in the field of cultural rights, Benoon is currently a visiting professor at the University of Michigan Law School. Thanks for taking the time to come on the podcast today. I know you've been very busy these past few weeks. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be with you. And thank you for your interest in these issues, because I'm fearing that now that the U.S. troops have left, attention will wane. So great to have a chance to talk about all of this. Absolutely. And I should say we are actually recording our conversation on August 31st, the U.S.'s deadline to get out of Afghanistan. The last military personnel left just hours ago. What are you hearing on the ground there right now? Well, I think it's a it's a very tragic moment for many Afghans. I'm hearing that many, including human rights defenders, women activists, cultural workers and artists, feel abandoned by the international community. I think it's hard for many of them to understand why the United States and the international community seem to care so little about them at this point, but also seem to care so little about protecting their own investment in blood and treasure these last 20 years in helping rebuild Afghan civic and cultural life. Uh, It's, I think, very surprising to Afghans uh, to see the sort of willingness uh, to have all of that washed down the drain. I think another thing that has dismayed many Afghans in civil society, in cultural life, it's the idea that Afghans are somehow being blamed for what has happened uh, to their country due to the supposed lack of resilience or insufficient resistance uh, to the Taliban, when all of these sectors that I'm talking about have been doing everything that they could to speak out against extremism and to simply do sort of daily battle against it by living their lives in free and engaged uh, ways. And I'm hearing, sadly, in in my area of cultural rights, that much, if not most, of those working in the cultural sector feel they must leave the country for their safety, and only a small number of them have gotten out. Why do you think uh, the Afghan government collapsed so quickly, even before the uh, U.S. and NATO pullout was complete? I think, as you say, there is a 
broader discussion to be had here about uh, the successes and failures of the Afghan government, although I think we tend to hear much more about the failures, which were considerable, than we do about the successes, uh, which were also wide-ranging in many fields, including uh, education and succeeding in getting young, so many young girls and young people uh, educated. I remember when I was last in Afghanistan, the sort of beautiful sight of uh, school girls on the streets uh, with their backpacks. Um, but, you know, I think we have to look at the successes and uh, failures here and judge them in a, in a fair and objective uh, way. But we also have to recognize, for example, that between 50 and 70,000, depending on which statistics you use, Afghan soldiers and security forces died fighting the Taliban in the last 20 years. Uh, and so those horrible losses on top of about uh, 2,500 uh, U.S. military uh, losses and coalition military uh, losses really show that uh, I think Afghan uh, every every aspect of Afghan society, from the security uh, establishment and the armed forces uh, to civil society, were working hard to resist um, extremism and I think doing their best. And I think they began to understand that perhaps uh, there was a, a willingness in, of some governments to hand over to their opponents. And I, I think one also cannot discount the traumatism of 40 years of war. This is a society that has seen wave after wave of armed conflict since the Soviet invasion, followed by uh, the war between the Mujahideen groups, followed by the battle with the Taliban, then the international intervention in 2001, and uh, then the ongoing conflict between uh, the Taliban and international forces since that time. And, you know, the old adage, no one wants to be the last person uh, to die in a, in a particular war. I think there was a sense that the international community that was providing such needed support to the Afghan forces had surrendered or at least accepted uh, the outcome of the, the Taliban being victorious. And it was very difficult to see how the, the local forces could prevail. Although I, I have to stress, there are those forces which are still continuing to resist in the northern part of the country. So this is certainly not to excuse uh, the failures, but I think we have to look at the entire picture here. Right. And I think the uh, President Biden basically... Um, has referred to what's going on in Afghanistan right now as a civil war that, you know, the U.S. and NATO are are now withdrawing from. How do you respond to the president's argument that the U.S. couldn't stay there forever and that if, if the Afghan government wasn't able to stand on its own after 20 years of support, that another 20 or 40 years wouldn't likely make a difference? I don't think anyone wanted to see international forces stay forever. The point is that there had to be a stable situation on the ground. I was looking back at my notes of an interview uh, some 10 years ago with an Afghan woman. You know, and she kept saying, you know, no one wants their country occupied forever, but we want to make sure that when the forces leave, there is a stable Afghan government and security forces actually capable of 
of protecting the population. Uh, I think it's really a misnomer to call this a civil war. It is at the very least uh, in international law parlance, an internationalized internal armed conflict that many outside parties have been involved in uh, for for many years. And it certainly will have international uh, repercussions as well. Uh, So I think that that's a critically important piece of this to remember. And I also think that if we should have learned anything from the horrible tragedy of 9-11, it would be that the human rights of Afghans and the security of Americans are very closely interlinked. And, you know, the lesson of that awful period of time in Afghanistan in the late 90s, when the international community really wasn't interested anymore, uh, the sort of Cold War battle was over, and Afghan civilians were left to deal with a terrible armed conflict situation after many outside uh, parties had supported the armed groups. And when the world forgot A, there were atrocities uh, inside the country. I've been to Kabul Stadium, uh, where there were even executions uh, at the hands of the Taliban uh, and uh, systematic gender apartheid. And B, that period of atrocities also created a situation uh, which was really fertile for uh, the rise of uh, terrorist groups and planning of terrorist groups, ultimately leading uh, to the 9-11 attacks. And I'm I'm very saddened that with all of these deaths, we seem to have failed to learn the obvious lesson. You serve as a UN special rapporteur in the field of cultural rights. I know you can't speak for the whole organization, but what do you expect the UN will be doing going forward to help protect women and girls and and human rights in general? So very important as you rightly pointed out to stress that as a UN Special Rapporteur, I am an independent expert appointed by the UN Human Rights Council uh, and reporting to the Council, but independent uh, and I don't work for the UN nor do I speak for the rest of the UN. Uh, I would say that in the UN human rights system, we have tried to be very engaged all the way through the summer. I think it was very important to have a preventive approach to react as early as possible. We have issued uh, a number of statements calling on uh, the Human Rights Council and calling on states in the UN uh, to act effectively to create monitoring mechanisms to monitor the human rights situation on the ground, as well as accountability procedures to investigate some of the atrocities that happened throughout uh, the summer, including uh, targeted uh, bombings, uh, targeting uh, minority groups, targeting uh, girls' schools, and uh, so on. Uh, And unfortunately, the international community and states failed to react. Most recently, we've seen that the UN Human Rights Council had a special session last Tuesday on Afghanistan uh, and passed a resolution, which I'm glad was passed. I have to say it is weaker than I would have hoped. Uh, It is not specific enough about the dangers of Taliban abuses, and it does not provide for a monitoring mechanism, which is essential. And my hope is that the Security Council resolution 
that was passed yesterday, which also is uh, somewhat more tepid than I would like to have seen, uh, but at the very least insists that the Taliban have to allow all those at-risk Afghans uh, who need to leave the country to continue to do so uh, safely. And it insists on respect for uh, human rights and international humanitarian law by the Taliban. I hope that the whole UN system will work uh, to follow up and ensure uh, that those commitments are uh, fulfilled. And meanwhile, other branches of the UN will be continuing humanitarian work on the ground. Now, the Taliban have been saying the past few weeks that they have evolved over the past 20 years, that they aren't as extreme as they used to be. Uh, do you believe that? I mean, I think that's that's the big question here. And I'd like to offer a, a nuanced answer to it. I think the first thing one has to consider is the background of systematic human rights abuses as a matter of policy carried out by the Taliban when they were in power between 1996 and 2001, including the exclusion of women and girls from all aspects of uh, public life, even being able to go into a public space without a chaperone, uh, including their exclusion from schooling, including uh, discrimination against minorities, including the use of cruel punishments, uh, amongst other things. So I think that is one thing that is very uh, much remembered by Afghans and needs to be considered. Then there's the issue of the recent abuses by the Taliban, both in the context of the conduct of the armed conflict but also uh, in recent weeks, uh, we've seen the killing uh, of a folk singer uh, reported uh, to have been carried out by the Taliban, a folk singer named Fawad Andarabi. Uh, and these are reports coming from a number of very credible uh, sources. We have seen the reported, and I stress reported, abduction of a number of poets, and here I'm just looking in my area, we've seen reports of destruction of cultural heritage, uh, which is something that the Taliban had also done in the past. We have seen uh, the banning of music, which is clearly a de jure uh, act. And so all of that worryingly suggests that the past uh, track record could be a predictor of what may happen. And at the same time, I have to say that, you know, many have pointed to some of the statements being made by the Taliban leadership uh, in Doha, the spokespeople. And I think what we, the international community needs to do is to hold the Taliban accountable for living up to those pronouncements, you know, including that they would allow Afghans uh, to leave the country uh, after today going forward, including uh, respect for international norms, including even some pronouncements they've made about respecting cultural heritage, which they haven't done in the past. Uh, and, you know, there is some suggestion that there are different groups within the Taliban. But I, and, you know, and I, I respect that distinction. Nevertheless, what matters is not words in Doha, it's deeds in Kabul, and not only in Kabul, but on the territory of the entire country. And I, I always remember what an Afghan woman said to me when I interviewed her in Kabul uh, 10 years ago. I said, you know, what do you think of this suggestion that there's something called the moderate Taliban, which some in the State Department were even suggesting then? And she said to me, if someone is moderate, then why are they Taliban? 
right? It's almost like an oxymoron. It's an oxymoron. So, you know, a lot of their extremism is is based on this fundamentalism. And that's something that you focus on um, in your book. Your fatwa doesn't apply here. What prompted you to write it? And and can you talk a little bit about the relationship between fundamentalism and religion? Like it's the interpretation that is driving this movement. So in the book, I cite a particular definition of fundamentalisms and note the S. There are many different fundamentalisms in the world. Uh, and the definition that I cite is that they are political movements of the extreme right, which manipulate religion uh, to achieve political aims, basically to take power uh, in sometimes within states, sometimes within uh, society. I think very important to understand these as political projects that use an interpretation of religion as a tool rather than you know, merely some sort of expression of uh, religion. And this, to me, is a critical distinction. And these are unfortunately issues that I've worked on for a long time. Uh, because as you mentioned, I, I wrote this book, Your Fetwa Does Not Apply Here, which is based on the stories of many, many people of Muslim heritage in many different countries in the world working against fundamentalism and extremism. And I wrote this book for a very personal reason, which is that my father uh, was one of these brave people. My father was a professor of anthropology at the University of Algiers in Algeria. And Algeria also saw the rise of terrible fundamentalist armed groups in the 1990s uh, that tried to take over uh, the state. And there's really a connection here to Afghanistan because the worst uh, fighters, the sort of those who carried out some of the worst atrocities in the Algerian context, killings of intellectuals, uh, killings of unveiled women and uh, massacres, were called in Algeria the Afghans because they had fought in Afghanistan uh, in the context of uh, the battles between the jihadist armed groups and the conflict uh, against the Soviet Union. Uh, and, uh, you know, a lot of those jihadist groups had had the backing of the United States and Saudi Arabia and other uh, nations in a sort of Cold War calculation, and that had many consequences uh, all around the world, including in Algeria. And so I felt a very personal connection uh, to this issue. And one of the things that frustrated me, and I think it's similar to what you hear from Afghans now, is that everyone sort of knows about the terrorists, but they don't know about or pay attention to the people standing up to them. You know, the, the women's activists going to a bomb crater and filling it with flowers and standing there in protest at great risk to themselves uh, after an attack and so on. And so I think it's really critical, as it was in Algeria, as it is today in Afghanistan, to amplify those voices of the many Afghans in the cultural field, uh, in the human rights field, and, and ordinary Afghans who are working against extremism and fundamentalism and, and carrying that uh, forward. We can't let the Taliban speak for Afghanistan. We have to listen to so many other Afghan voices. I was wondering if you might be able to share some of the stories of the people that you are helping and that you have helped in your cultural rights work, you know, without putting anyone at risk, uh, of course. 
are there any stories you can share with us? With these are people, these are artists, musicians, um, other people in the cultural space that have been trying to get out of the country now that the government has fallen. Can you can you share any stories with us? Well, I was talking to some of my cultural partners today, and we determined after a very hectic few weeks that actually. Already, we have a total of 813 cases that we need to work on of artistic and cultural figures uh, gravely at risk who need to leave the country. And we fear that this is also the tip of the iceberg and many more cases will be coming our way. And I have to stress that we tried everything we could think of. Uh, I worked with many cultural institutions, uh, human rights organizations, and other uh, individuals uh, who were concerned to try to get some of these artistic and cultural figures out to be very creative, to fill out all the forms. We sort of went from government to government. Um, we had some successes, but sadly, there are so many people we still uh, haven't been able to get out and whose cases we need to keep working on. And for security reasons, I will tell you the story of one of the successes, which I think is a, is a really a beautiful story and a, a very important person who I am so grateful has made it to safety. Um, but I think, unfortunately, we have to remember that in some ways he represents thousands of others uh, who didn't yet. So I wanted to share the story of Omara Khan Masoudi who is the former director of the National Museum of Afghanistan. And the National Museum has this wonderful motto, which is a nation stays alive when its culture stays alive. And so I think they've always understood the relationship between uh, you know, the, the museum and their cultural work and the well-being of the entire society around them. And Mr. Masudi has worked at the museum over the course of many decades of conflict and is actually one of the people who was responsible for saving uh, the collection of the museum during the war between the Mujahideen groups in the 1990s, when he and a few other cultural figures kept the keys uh, of to that collection, uh, and no one else knew who had the keys and really put their lives on the line to save the cultural heritage of humanity. And then in 2001, the Taliban's Ministry of Culture at the time uh, actually sent armed men to the museum and they destroyed about 2,700 of the best pieces in the museum. And, you know, you have to imagine, I think this suggests to us the danger today. These are the cultural authorities of the country destroying its own history, its own uh, artifacts. And after that time, Mr. Masoudi uh, and others worked to put those artifacts back together. Uh, many of them uh, pre-Islamic artifacts. Uh, and I remember asking him, you know, why this was important. And he said, well, you know, no one worships these statues here today, but this is a part of our history, part of our heart. And they really used the museum collection to try to teach uh, tolerance in a sort of nuanced uh, and and quiet way uh, that was possible in the context of Afghanistan. And I really wonder, I ask in my book, you know, how many times can you reconstruct a thousands of year old uh, statue? Uh, and that really makes me fear for the future of the museum. And I remember what Mr. Masudi told me. He said, we must transfer this. And he was talking about the cultural treasure of the museum. We must transfer this to the next generation. 
And I remember asking him if, if he was hopeful. And this is back 10 years ago in 2011. And he said something that I think is really important to remember today. He said, having hope is essential for life. Uh, and he said, the sacred religion of Islam always promotes hope. Uh, and I think that hopeful uh, message and that interpretation, that tolerant interpretation uh, of Islam is one that is really critically important to uh, remember and, and to understand the importance of today. And so I'm so grateful that Mr. Masudi, uh, with the help of many uh, organizations uh, and uh, governments made it to safety, but uh, my fear continues for the other colleagues inside Afghanistan uh, who work in the cultural field, in the museum sector, protecting cultural heritage. Uh, and let's use his story and the importance of his work as an inspiration to keep working to get all of them to safety. That's a wonderful story that you that you got him out. And let me be very clear. I'm not solely in any way taking right, responsibility right. for okay. getting anyone okay. out. I worked with many other people and one never knows actually the extent to which one has actually helped. One hopes one contributed a little. The 813 people are cases we are still working on of at-risk cultural workers, artists, and their families who we have tried through many different initiatives uh, to evacuate and have been unable uh, to do so. So those are people whose cases we are still needing to actively work on with very limited resources. And so I really, I wanna stress to governments, to people listening, to please remember that amongst the many categories of at-risk Afghans, including women human rights defenders, including other human rights activists, including journalists, please also remember cultural workers and artists because they are really in the front lines of those targeted by the Taliban because their uh, art and, and cultural practice is so much at odds with the very stark vision of Afghanistan uh, that the Taliban has historically had. And when you think that music is already banned, what does that mean for people practicing in that field? When you think that a singer has already been reportedly killed, what does that mean for all the other singers? So so how can human rights advocates move forward in a country ruled by the Taliban? One of the most important things that I think has to be done is to secure uh, lines of communication uh, going forward so that we can stay in touch with those at risk. As the communications context in Afghanistan uh, might shift. And I, I think that, you know, it's it's really important to, to think about that. We also have to think about ways uh, in which they can be concretely supported. And I, I was really inspired to hear that actually the current director of the Afghan Museum uh, has put a, a message out on uh, social media uh, saying that so far the National Museum has been uh, protected from uh, looting and a destruction and that, you know, the, those curators, the, the cultural workers are determined to continue, but, you know, according to their capacity. And it's really up to all of us to try to find creative ways uh, to help build and sustain their capacity 
uh, to do that work. I think that that is uh, critically important. We also, I think, need to move to have structures and not have an ad hoc response, which is, I think, where the lack of planning around the evacuation uh, really led to significant challenges in the last few weeks. So we need structures. We need coordination of the different groups who are working on these issues. And critically, we need funding. And one of my frustrations in the last few weeks is that when one went to governments for help, sometimes one was referred either A, to other governments, or B, to civil society. And while civil society is a very important resource, civil society simply does not have uh, all of the resources at its disposal that a government would or the capacity, and it's not a substitute. And when you mean civil society, you mean like NGOs and organizations like that? NGOs, human rights groups, uh, charities, uh, activist groups, and so on. So to wrap up, what would your message be to Americans who may start hearing about Afghanistan less and less in the news because we don't have a military presence there anymore? One is I think we really need to call on our news organizations to continue to cover this story. It's a critically important story for the human rights of Afghans, but also for the security of Americans, and we need to not take our eye off the ball. Next, I think there are all sorts of alternative ways to reach out for information. Uh, to the extent that they're able to continue, uh, you can follow Tolo News, T-O-L-O, uh, on uh, Twitter or find them on social media. That's an Afghan news outlet. You can follow uh, a number of different artistic and cultural uh, Afghan groups. I think about, for example, the Art Lords, who had a wonderful project, a mural project against the war in Afghanistan. And I'm very thankful that uh, their director, Omaid Sharifi, their founder, uh, has also uh, made it out. And he's continuing to get the messages out about uh, the absolute need to insist that the Taliban uh, respect uh, artists and, and respect the ability for there to be a cultural life. Uh, we need to listen to those voices. And if they are not being brought to us, uh, we need to seek them out. Well, Karima, thank you so much for taking the time and sharing your insight. This has been a really important conversation. Thank you so much for your interest. Karima Banoon is a professor at the UC Davis School of Law. She's currently a visiting professor at the University of Michigan Law School. Banoon has been part of an international effort to get at-risk artists, musicians, poets, and other cultural workers out of Afghanistan, with the Taliban now back in control there. Her recent book, Your Fatwa Does Not Apply Here, Untold Stories from the Fight Against Muslim Fundamentalism, was based on hundreds of interviews with people from 30 countries. Find out more about her work on our website, ucdavis.edu slash podcasts. Just click on the backdrop. And if you like the backdrop, check out our other UC Davis podcast, Unfold. It breaks down complicated problems and unfolds curiosity-driven research. Join public radio veteran and host Amy Quinton and co-host Kat Curlin for Unfold. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Satirius Johnson, and this is The Backdrop, a UC Davis podcast exploring the world of ideas.